Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. If you're using the black Bibles in the seats around you, Exodus 14 can be found on page 56. We're continuing a series of studies, a brief overview of encounters with God in the book of Exodus, chapters 1 through 19. This is a little break in between our big section of our study through Matthew's Gospel that, Lord willing, we'll pick back up in October. For now, we keep working our way through the narrative of Exodus, and we come to a passage that is one of the most foundational passages of the entire Bible. If you would like to understand the Bible, you need to understand the Exodus. If you understand Jesus and the Gospel, you need to realize that The gospel of Jesus is understood in light of the Exodus story. Typically, I'll tell people there's probably about five passages in the Old Testament that, like, if you want to get the Old Testament, you need to know these well. The first one is Genesis 1, 2, and 3, those first three chapters. If you don't understand Genesis 1 through 3, you will not understand the Bible. The second one is Genesis 12 through 17 give or take, but the covenant made with Abraham. The third one is this text, starting in chapter 14 and going into chapter 20, where God saves the people through the Exodus and makes a covenant at Mount Sinai and gives the Ten Commandments. The fourth one is the story of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, David being the king who has made a covenant with God called the covenant made with David, and you need to understand the story of David that surrounds it, but that chapter in particular becomes a key point for the rest of the Bible in terms of the Old Testament. And then last but not least, you need to understand Isaiah chapter 53, that there's a prophecy of a man who would come, who would be the son of David, the Messiah, the king, who is going to rescue his people from slavery and exile He's going to fulfill the exodus. His name would be Jesus, and he would do this by suffering. So in a nutshell, those five texts of Scripture, if you want to read them later, if you want to overview the whole Old Testament, those five passages are central to the whole Old Testament. So here we find ourselves on passage number three of those top five. And I want to just read the whole thing of chapter 14 And 15 into verse 21. When you're at a text that's this central to the whole Bible, it's good to just read it. Amen? Read God's Word. Are you okay with that? Well, you don't have a choice. You can leave, but I'm going to read it. Page 56, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi, Haharoth, between Migdol, in the sea in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, 
that we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped at the sea. By Pi Ha Hiraoth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out to Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by the dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of the fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. 
And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in their heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your, your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them up. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Well, this is a glorious text, and I am almost certain that I won't do justice to it. But what I'd like to do is fix our gaze on God through this text. This series is Encounters with God in Exodus. So in keeping with that theme, I'd like us to see the salvation of God, see the Savior of God, and sing the song about God. See the salvation, savor the Savior, and sing the song. First, let's see the salvation. A key theme throughout this two chapters is that God is going to get glory from his salvation that he brings to Israel. It starts off in our text with a story with a strange turn, literally a strange turn. The directions here in verse 1 that the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel in verse 2 to turn back. 
If you know the story of Exodus thus far, you've got ten miraculous, powerful signs that eventually got an entire nation of people, says about 600,000 men, with all of their wives and their children and the single people that are amongst them and then their cattle and all their stuff. So start adding it up. We're talking one million, two million people. They're leaving Egypt and they're heading north. They're moving up from Egypt into the land of Canaan, the land that God promised them. And as they're camping, God gives the instruction to Moses, turn them back. Go the wrong direction, back toward Egypt. Strange, is it not? Have you caught this before in the story? The directions here are for the purpose of luring Pharaoh, as you keep reading the story, into seeing that it seems like they don't know where they're going. Oh, they're lost. They're just wandering around. And that this would harden Pharaoh's heart again, as God predicted, so that God would get glory. As we see in verse 4, Yahweh might harden his heart and gain rightful glory over. The Hebrew root word for glory is kabod, kavod. It's the same word used to describe the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart was made kavod, made very heavy. It's a play on words contrasting and showing that the reason for this whole turn is about God's conquering over Pharaoh. And soon enough, the heaviness of Pharaoh's heart will lead him to sink into the depths of the sea with all of his chariots. Now, we have no idea that Pharaoh himself was with the chariots. In fact, it probably seems best to think that he wasn't with them. But either way, Pharaoh loses. The directions end with an echo in verse 4. If you look down at it, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue and get glory so that you will know that I am the Lord. Echoing that phrase that we've seen all through the story up to this point. Read the first 13 chapters and you will continue to see that the confrontations with Pharaoh are done so that Pharaoh and all the other nations will know who Yahweh is. You might remember from last week that Pharaoh, when he was first confronted with Moses, he said, who's Yahweh? Why should I obey him? Here in the most climactic of ways, Yahweh's powerful act will not just be for the faith and belief of the Israelites, but also so that the glory of Yahweh will be known among all the nations, including Pharaoh. So let's glory in the wisdom of God. Glory in the wisdom of the God who tells them to turn back. And my guess is just like you and me, there are times when you're thinking, I don't know why we're going this way, God. There's a strange turn of events in my life, a strange turn. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, you don't see the whole picture, do you? God will gain glory for himself over Egypt. Charles Spurgeon says in his sermon on this text, Thank God then, dear brothers and sisters, if you have been given by God a rough road, it is this which he has given you for your experience of God's loving kindness. Your troubles have enriched you with a wealth of knowledge to be gained that you would get by no other means. Your trials have been the cleft of the rock in which God will set you 
as he did his servant Moses, so that you will behold his glory when he passes by. So praise your God, O sons of sorrow, that you have not been left to the darkness and ignorance which continued prosperity might have involved. Bless him that you have been able to see his glory by being permitted and honored to endure a great fight of affliction. Our one aim in life is to glorify God. And if so, are not these afflictions precious which enable you to honor him? We can call them friends if they help us praise our God. We will wear them as jewels and crowns and rejoice in them as a bride rejoices in her ornaments if they aid us in further glorifying our blessed God. In this spirit, we may almost envy the children of Israel as we see them entangled in the wilderness and overtaken by their foes, for now they will see the mighty arm of God laid bare. Is that your perspective when you get an unexpected turn in your life? to glory in the wisdom of our God. As we keep reading through the story, we see that we should continue to glory not just in his wisdom, but in his sovereignty to harden Pharaoh's heart. And for the first time, we're told explicitly in verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told, why the little king of Egypt? We're not told specifically which king or which Pharaoh this is, I think part of the reason is so that way you see in this Pharaoh an archetype, uh, the epitome of, of evil and darkness. There's further connections in this story about bricks that connect you back to the Tower of Babel. Egypt is the new Babel. It is the new empire. It is the new technology creating powerful force on the face of the earth. But yet, Pharaoh's heart is not too far for God to do what he pleases. I wonder if the Proverbs author was thinking of this in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Glory in the God of wisdom and his sovereignty over the heart of Pharaoh and even the mightiest king on the planet. Glory in the patience of God, as you see in verse 8 of our story, that the people of Israel were defiant. The literal translation of this is they had their fists or their hands held up high. There's a ton of play on words in this story. I've pointed out a couple of them, but one of them is the use of hand throughout it. This is one of those instances. They have their hands held up high. They're defiant. They're they're giving the hand to Egypt as they say, yeah, that's right. That was our God that set us free. And so they're defiantly leaving Egypt. They're confident in verse 8. They're proud. They're excited. But it doesn't take long, does it, for that confidence and defiance and that hand held up high to turn hand over their mouth with fear. Oh, no. Look at verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army. They overtook them and encamped by the sea. So what's their response in verse 10? When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Defiant hands raised up high, confident Chariots come. By the way, chariots are showing that they had 
probably the most sophisticated military. You want to be thinking like fighter jets of today's day with crazy technology, and this would have been the greatest army that was on the earth. So if you were to put yourself in that situation, I think you could relate, right? You've got a bunch of non-combatant army, non-army people. You've got women and children and cattle. You're in a big group of people. You're on flat land. Chariots are not good in hills and mountains, but on flat lands where they are, they're just dead meat sitting there. And they see the chariots coming and they know what's going to happen. So they, they're afraid. They're terrified. So they cry out to the Lord. Verse 11 says, they cry out to Yahweh this time. In chapter 2, when we were reading the story earlier, they were crying out to Elohim. They just cried out to God. But now they know who God is. He is Yahweh. Verse 11, they said to Moses, because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bring us out of Egypt? It's not this what we said to you in Egypt. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This becomes not a point backwards, but a point forwards. As we keep reading the story, you come back next week, you'll find that These people are very fickle. They're happy and rejoice. They're defiant. And then they cower in fear. In our story, the way we finished off in chapter 15, they're rejoicing, right? Come back next week. It doesn't take long. Glory in the patience of God's salvation. As 1 Peter 3 or 2 Peter 3 says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years In a thousand years as one day, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In what ways do you need to glory in God's patience with you? How many of us struggle with thinking, not again, He won't forgive me again, but I did it again, I'm too unworthy. Why should I even go back to church or pray? Glory in the patience of God who deals with a stubborn people. He always has and he always will. See it. See his patience. See the glory of it. See the glory of his sovereignty, his patience, his wisdom, his salvation. Look at verses 13 and 14 of our story. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians for whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. He does not just bring salvation. If you turn your eyes over to chapter 15, verse 2 on the next page, he is their salvation. Glory in God's salvation. He will fight for you. He is the means and the end of their salvation. He is the man of war, the divine warrior who fights for the oppressed. Some people in modern days don't like the idea of thinking about God as a divine warrior, a man of war. I don't think you should have any problem with this. 
Should we not fight for injustice? Against it, not for it? Should we not fight against evil? Do you not want to see people who are being enslaved in human trafficking be put to an end? Anybody get their blood boiling when you start thinking about the atrocities that go on around the world in dark corners that are happening all over? How about corruption from kings and governments? Whether governments here in the U.S. or around the world, it doesn't matter. Just think about all of the evil and darkness. Don't you like to know that there's a God who fights against it and he conquers and he wins? Don't you like the idea and not tremble back with, ugh, repulsive, sounds so old and ancient and barbaric. Don't you like the idea that God takes the little man, comes to their side and fights for them, and all they need to do is be silent? The word is sometimes used in the Hebrew to refer to being deaf. Be still and know that I am God. One of my favorite things I read this week is as I was preparing, it was from a, a commentary and it was trying to figure out how should we apply the story of the Exodus. And at this point of the commentary, the author says this. Perhaps we can say that it is not so much that we can apply the Exodus to our lives, but that the Exodus is applied to us. The significance of Exodus for us is not found in what we do with it, but in what God has done for us. You will miss the point entirely of this story if you reduce its grand theological message to a number of moral lessons like, be faithful when you're in a tight fix, or don't fear tough times, be still, God will take care of you. Now, of course, these things are good to remember, and they are difficult for us to do. But the question here is whether the point of Exodus is to teach us those lessons. I think not. The Exodus story is not a pep talk for when we go through trying circumstances to teach us that God will win the battle for us. Rather, if anything, it is a pep talk to remind us that God has won the battle. All of our daily battles, which are real and matter to God, should be seen in the overarching context of God's victory. Or as Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Are you glorying in a victory that has been won on your behalf and you did nothing about it? What is your contribution to your salvation? Other than the sin that you need saved from? Starting here in Exodus and repeatedly throughout the Bible, the answer is nothing. We contribute nothing. As Tim Keller has said and as I've repeated to come to Jesus, to come to God. If you'd like to become a Christian, all you need is nothing. The hard part is, is too many of us come with hands full, trying to save ourselves. Not enough people have nothing. Empty hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come for dress. Helpless I look for rest glory in the salvation. See the salvation, Moses says. See the glory of his power 
in verses 15 through 31, as they conclude at the very end, look right down at verse 30 and 31, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptian dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that God used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. Remember when they feared Israel? Well, now they fear Yahweh, and they believed in their servant Moses, whom they had previously doubted. See his great power. Fear God. Or as the song says, your right hand, glorious in power in verse 6 in chapter 15. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries and send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Do you glory in God's power over creation? One of the big reasons I think there's this connection to the waters, there's echoes back as we looked at last week and previous weeks to creation and the creative power of God over all of creation. And so many people read this story and they think, yeah, I don't think this could have happened. Well, I don't think that you can really know who God is, the God of the Bible, without believing that he is the creator God who has power over all of creation. That when he speaks in chapter 1 of the Bible, creation exists. He created something out of nothing. When he tells Moses to cover the waters or raise the waters, they're deep waters. This was not like a little creek. There was a wall. The word used there is for like a city wall, at least 10 feet high or higher. Could you imagine? You've got to have a big, giant pathway for a million plus people to walk through as well. And then the ground was dry. But then when Pharaoh's army comes in, he allows it to get a little wet. And then their chariots start getting stuck in the wet ground instead of the dry ground. God's power is on display all through this story. And then you're like, well, maybe this was just like a metaphor. The entire nation of Israel and every Jew to this day, even present-day modern Jews, this is the story that they have shaped their entire existence around. It seems really odd to think that your entire religion as a Jewish community is based on something that you don't think actually happened. It would be like saying for us today, I don't believe Jesus really rose again from the dead. Well, my friend, then you really have no faith in the true God of the Bible. Without a resurrected Jesus, you have no Christianity. Without the virgin birth, you have no Christianity. Without God displaying his power over creation, you have no Christianity. By the way, keep reading in the Old Testament. God's going to do this same miracle again as the people cross over into the land of Canaan. It's not that he just can do it once. He does it again. Glory in his power. Lastly, glory in his justice. See the glory of God's salvation in all these multifaceted ways. But lastly, I want you to see in this first point the glory of God's justice. In chapter 15, in verses 4 and 5, it says that Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts were cast into the sea. Now, you might be reading that and think, they weren't cast into the sea. The Bible contradicts itself. This is called prophetic poetry 
because it's going to point both backward and forward. That's how the song ends, if you read to the end of the song. But it also is pointing back, and it's looking at what happened, but in a poetic way. And when you talk in poetry, hopefully you understand you use metaphor and imagery. And you try and do things with leave little nuggets that help get people thinking. Why use the word cast into the sea? Should that remind you of anything that happened earlier in chapter 1, verse 22, when babies were cast into the waters? So the people of Egypt were cast into the waters and drowned to death. The poetic justice should be dripping as you read chapter 15. Let me give you another little nugget. Look down at verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. And again, if you want to be over-literal and not look at this as a poem, you'd be like, how is there fire and water going on at the same time? Oh, the Bible. Or you could think, why would he use that language of destruction, of burning stubble? Well, because if you read back in chapter 5, verse 12, you will see that they made bricks and had to gather stubble, and over and over, the people of Israel were surrounded by stubble as they were slaves in Egypt. I don't think that they would have missed this. I think this is why it was included in the song. So see the glory of God's poetic justice to give to Egypt exactly what they deserved Think of it as the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, stubble for stubble, cast into the waters, cast into the waters. That's point one. See the glory of God's salvation, His wisdom, His patience, His saving power and protection, His justice. Second, savor the Savior of this text. Who is the Savior of the Exodus story? Well, at first glance, it seems like it's Yahweh. But who's Yahweh? As we've seen, Yahweh has two beings that are at least in these texts. And we know throughout reading the whole Bible, there's three beings, persons. This is what the Christians call the teaching of the Trinity. And you actually see it in this story. And it points us to a greater Savior named Jesus, that this story foreshadows a greater salvation from a more deep and profound slavery, a slavery of sin, a slavery to the fear of death, as Romans 6 and Hebrews chapter 2 are both going to say that we are all in slavery. So how is Jesus in this text? Chapter 14, verse 13 Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Moses stood firm. Moses represented the people of Israel. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, and this is all in the singular tense, Moses, why did you cry up to me and tell, I want you to tell the people of Israel to go forward? That question there is interesting. Who was the one actually crying and who was standing firm? Who was confident in the Lord's salvation and who was fearful? Moses was standing firm. The people were cowering in fear. So when God comes, why does he come to Moses and say, why do you? And the best explanation, I think, is that Moses is the head of the body 
of Israel. He is the king over the nation. He is the captain of the army. He represents the people. Moses isn't crying, but the people are. And because God speaks through Moses, Moses represents the sins of the people. Furthermore, Moses represents not just the people of Israel, he represents God. Look at chapter 14, verses 16. It says, Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Then drop down to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. When you read in chapter 15, the poetic description in verse 12, it says, Yahweh, you stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them up. And you start asking yourself, so wait, did Moses stretch out his hand, or did Yahweh stretch out his hand? And the answer is both. Moses is representing God as he stretches out his hand. It's as if that's God's hand. And that's the way to read this story, not just here in 14 and 15, but if you read back earlier in chapter 6, you'll see another explanation of, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, my hand, outstretched arm, will do this. But it's really Moses' outstretched arm and hand. So the best way to understand this is that Moses did, as a representative of Yahweh, what God was doing. Moses was faithful in the midst of death, even when all of his friends around him were sinning and were not faithful. He represented both the sins of the people of Israel and was an embodiment of God himself. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Can you think of a later Savior who would come who was not just faithful in the face of impending death, but actually going through death? And when he looked at the quote-unquote chariots coming his way, when he looked at the hand of God's judgment coming, Jesus, the greater Moses, would have his friends not even pray, not even fear. They would just sleep under a tree. Jesus both represented his people as the head of the body, as the leader of God's army, as our intercessor and mediator. He in, He represented all of humanity. That's why he is fully man. But he also represented God, being fully God. When Jesus' arms were outstretched on the cross, those were God's arms. When the darkness fell over the face of the earth, when Jesus was dying on the cross, and the judgment of God's wrath was coming down on his head, that was God's head. When Jesus raised from the dead and walked through those waters of judgment safely, unlike the people of Egypt and the Pharaoh and his chariots, safely on to dry land, those were God's feet walking. When Jesus did anything, it was the Creator God in flesh. Or as Hebrews chapter 3 will summarize this point, therefore, holy brothers, You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, 
but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, he is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We savor the Savior not only by comparing Jesus with Moses the way Hebrews so clearly does in chapter 3, but look at one more detail. In chapter 13, before our text, in verses 20 and 21, we're told of a pillar of fire and a pillar, a cloud of, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Follow along as I read verse 21 and 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. Question, are there two pillars or one? One common interpretation is that there's only one and that there's one pillar that glows, but during the sunlight, you can't really see the glow, so you just see the cloud. But then at night, it glows because the sun's down. It's fine. Problem, though. Go to chapter 14, verse 19 and 20. See if you pick up this. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So now we have this angel figure who is behind and then coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. The cloud was there. There was darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. Here we see that the fire is in front and the cloud is in back, and it's as if you see that there's two manifestations of this pillar figure. And I think that this points us back to the angel of the Lord figure that we saw in the burning bush. The angel of the Lord is in the burning bush, Yahweh speaking. Who's the angel of the Lord? It's Jesus. And so that kind of ties up some loose ends figure. Uh, from earlier teachings as well. Last but not least, how about we consider and savor the Savior when you think just the simple fact that the name of Jesus is connected to the Exodus story in chapter 14, verse 13. Remember when Moses says, see the salvation of the Lord? The word salvation is Yeshua. See the Yeshua of Yahweh. Anybody ever read Matthew chapter 1 before? Mary, you're going to have a baby, and you shall call his name Yeshua, or as we pronounce it, Jesus. For Jesus means Yahweh saves, the salvation of Yahweh. And then what's the very next chapter of Matthew? Another Pharaoh. This time it's not the Pharaoh of Egypt, but King Herod killing babies, slaughtering babies. And then the author of Matthew says, in the same way Jesus fulfills the Exodus prophecy, out of Egypt I have called my son. God will bring salvation through Jesus Christ in a much greater way, and your response is to savor it. That's it. 
Look at it, see it, and savor it. Just recently I was reading with my children the biography or story of Charles Spurgeon and how he came to faith and became one of the greatest preachers ever. And it reminded me that when he came to faith, there was a great snowstorm, so he couldn't make it to church. And so he made it to this Methodist church that wasn't his normal place of worship. And as he got into the church service, the pastor couldn't make it to church, so some random shoemaker got up and started preaching Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. And he said, look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And the preacher said, my dear friends, this is a very simple text. It says, look and you will be saved, all the ends of the earth. And I love one of the points that the pastor makes. He says, looking does not take a great deal of effort. You don't have to even lift a foot or a finger. You just look. A man does not even need to go to college to learn how to look. You could be the biggest fool in the world, but you know how to look. A man does not need to be worth a thousand a year to look. Anybody can look. A child can look. The Bible says, look unto me, but most of you, you're looking to yourselves. There's no use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourself. And then Spurgeon says he went off for like 10 minutes in this sort of manner, saying, look unto me. I'm sweating drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I have died and was buried. But look unto me. I have risen again. Look unto me. I have ascended and I sit at the Father's right hand. Look unto me. Oh, look unto me and be saved. And the story continues, and the pastor points Spurgeon out, points right at him and says, Young man, you look miserable. (laughs) And calls him out right in front of the whole church, and he says, Well, I I was. And he got saved. That's how Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers ever, became a Christian. He savored the Savior. In his autobiography, he says, I must have looked my eyes away at the cross as that man preached. Have you savored the Savior ever? If not, look today. That's all you need to do. Look at the salvation of the God who fights for you. The Ten Commandments come after the salvation, not before. Obeying God comes after you look and see He loves and saves and redeems and rescues and purchases a people. See the glory of God's salvation, savor the Savior, and finally sing the song. What should be our response to all of this as we read this story, as we consider these points? The response of the people of Israel was to sing. They looked, they saw, they feared God, and they sang. Will you sing? Not too long ago, somebody visited church that's not accustomed to coming to church. I invited this person, so I was curious as what they thought about church. And one of the interesting comments in our dialogue after the service was, yeah, the singing was weird. It was like, oh, you didn't like the songs? No, it's just, you guys were like, some of you were into it. You know, people were raising their hands. People just, they seemed really into singing. He didn't get it. 
Do you get it? You don't have to raise your hands. You can. I know some people appreciate it. Adam says he appreciates it. Show some emotion. Show some facial expressions. Be glad that you're here singing songs, not just quietly moving your mouth. Are you willing to rejoice with loud singing, knowing that God has saved and rescued and redeemed you? Does it even have anything stirring up? Even if you are just, I'm reserved, okay? I express God in different ways. Is there even something going on inside where you're like, my heart is exploding with joy, even if I'm reserved on the outside? Friend, do you sing? Does, does your heart leap with joy? This is what happens when God saves. It leads to song. What kind of songs should we sing if God has saved us? We should sing songs about God and his salvation. Oh, God of my salvation. The Father, Son, and Spirit. Ascribe the glory of his name. We should sing man of sorrows. What a name. We should sing it as well with my soul. For my sin, oh, the bliss of the thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well with my soul. We should sing songs like that with joy. God-centered, Christ-exalting songs that look backwards and forwards. Do you know this song in Revelation chapter 15 becomes the foundational song for all future redemption? There's lots of singing in the book of Revelation. It makes you think that the heavenly realm, the angels, they're singing. They're shouting. They're declaring. I don't believe, by the way, that heaven is one continuous worship song, as some have suggested. I don't know why that's a theory or an idea. There is descriptions of singing in the Revelation, like I said, but I think that's just to say that all of our future, when Christ returns, will be full worship. And so we can spur on living now as if heaven is our reality in the future by singing and worshiping now, not just with our lips, but our lives. So let's pray and sing some more.